the Gospel according to Luke. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. Bible's in the back. We're on uh, chapter 13 this morning, number 55 in our sermon series on Luke. Number 55. As they leave, everybody, you open up your apps or your Bibles to Luke 13, and I'll do our scripture reading. Just nine verses today. This is why we do expository preaching. <laughs> I don't think a whole lot of people are opening up this passage on Christmas Eve morning, but here we find ourselves in Luke 13, chapter 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord, the inspired, inherit, inherit authoritative word from God. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled, had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I'll tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Verse 8. And he answered him saying, Sir, let alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy inerrant word this morning. I heard a preacher once say, soft words produce hard people, but hard words produce soft people. May God soften our hearts in this very difficult saying, teaching of our Lord that comes from his lips. Luke chapter 13. As we get into the middle of Luke, Jesus has been teaching and and showing and revealing some very hard truths. We learn from chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to be rejected by the religious leaders. He will suffer, he will be crucified and die, and three days later he will rise again. And now in this time left, he is pressing home, he's driving home truths to his disciples and to others so that they can understand and learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. He's already explained to them the cost of discipleship, the priority of discipleship. How life does not consist of of the abundance of of possessions. But as followers of Christ, we have to trust God for our daily provision, which frees us from worry and anxiety and fear and allows us to be generous and rich toward God as we seek his kingdom. And we who are seeking the kingdom, whose priority and, and supreme treasure is Christ and his mission, we must do so in the context of always being ready for his return. We saw that in chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Last week, Pastor Chris did a great job teaching us that the first advent, the first coming of Christ was, in Jesus' own words, a baptism to accomplish a, a fire to be casted down on the earth. Pastor Chris said he would not rest, that's Jesus, he would not rest until he completed his mission. Though he 
brought him through the fires of God's judgment and even his own death, Jesus remained steadfast, focused, resolved, and undeterred on his mission, end quote. We also learned last week that Jesus' cross, his, his substitutionary atonement, his sacrifice, his baptism was divisive. He splits people into two camps. There are those who repent and trust and choose to, to seek Christ, to love Christ, to worship Christ, and, and to follow him and to seek his kingdom, and those who will continue on the path of destruction. That's that division. Lastly, we saw last week, Jesus confronts the crowd's unwillingness to respond to this reality, this truth, that King Jesus has come. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, has arrived. He says to them, you know, how can you, you, you know how to interpret the weather on earth, but not the reality of who is standing right in front of them. But verse 56, I tell you, You will never get out until you paid the very last penny. You know, how to, you know how to interpret the signs, but you don't recognize the one who's right in front of you. He's the judge. He's the ruler. You need to repent. Chris talked about that. They did a great job warning that Jesus was warning them and, and, and checking out the signs and seeing what's happening in the weather, seeing the reality of the king being right there with them. And he, and he warns them that someday you're going to give account the Holy One will judge you for your sin. And a sin that you owe is a debt that you'll never pay. We need a, a, a capable arbitrator. Someone who could argue the case and satisfy our accuser. That's what he's talking about in verses 57 through 59. But in fact, Pastor Chris said, The accuser has taken it upon himself to grant us pardon through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son, the accuser being God. The Father, Jesus Christ. God didn't simply waive the debt that would make him unjust and taint his holiness. Instead, he, God, paid it, end quote. And then someone in the crowd puts up their hand and says, Jesus, I, I know the signs of the times. Let me tell you a story that brings us to our text. A newsflash. A surprise answer and a patient God. A news flash, a surprise answer, and a patient God. So someone in the crowd, pick me, pick me, Jesus. And he tells them a story that was in all the newspapers, right? All the cable news, everybody picked it up. The new flash was familiar to the crowd. We don't have any biblical record of it other than here or historical record of it. That's not a big deal. A lot of things that happened in history that were not recorded. But everyone in that day, when the story's being told, knew about the incident that took place. They knew the story. The incident most likely took place in the Passover, during the Passover season celebration. Only time when, when laymen and Galileans were, or otherwise, were involved in, slaughter, in slaughtering the animals for sacrifice. So as the story goes, while in Jerusalem, celebrating one of the most important holy days of the Jewish calendar... Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, went into the temple area and slaughtered, cold-blooded, murdered, and massacred some people from Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, it's where Jesus is from. Human blood then mingled together with the animals that were being offered there in the Jerusalem temple. It's very possible, I think most people would agree, that Pontius Pilate saw these men as political enemies, 
or a threat and decided to show off his power and strength. He had a reputation for being an angry, bitter, murderous man. One commentator said, his many massacres marked his administration, end quote. So it fits his character, the character of Pilate. An atrocity, to say the least. Not only were people murdered, they were murdered in the temple, in the middle of their worship. Someone asked, where was God? They're obeying the command. God commands all Israelite men to go to Jerusalem during the Passover feast. But do what God commanded them to do. So studying this text, the hard text, I couldn't help but think of 9-11, right? How people were just going to work. World Trade Center, maybe getting on a flight they've done 30 other times before. And then at the hands of evil and wicked men, 3,000, over 3,000 died. And then with that news flash, that real atrocity, Jesus tells his own story. Another incident everyone seemed to know, verse 4. Sorry, do I have that up there? Okay, verse 4. Jesus says, what about those 18 people who died in Salome when the tower fell? Salome is where the southern and eastern walls of Jerusalem came together. There was a reservoir called the Reservoir of Salom or the Pool of Salome. You've heard of that before. It's otherwhere in scriptures. Apparently, at that spot, there was a tower on the wall, and perhaps it was a fortification to watch oncoming armies or not. whatever it was. That tower collapsed. Maybe it was during construction, possibly people walking past the, this, this, this walkway by this tower, by this fortified tower on the side of this wall, and they were crushed. Natural disaster, crushed. Minding their own business, crushed. 18 people died. Once again, this is where we find this incident in Scripture, but obviously everyone knew it. Jesus referred to it because everyone had common knowledge of the pool of Siloam, that wall falling down and crushing and killing actually 18 people. Again, can't help but think of other major catastrophes, natural disasters that take the lives of people. Think of the earthquake, a tsunami in March 2011 in Japan. 18,000 people died. Hurricane Katrina, over 1,800 people. 600,000 being forced from their homes. And whenever tragedy strikes, whether it's a natural disaster or a human, atro- uh, human atrocity, there's always questions that people struggle with. They may not say it out loud, but they're thinking it. Where was God when this took place? Or, why does this, why did this have to happen? And I don't think it's an unnatural question to ask. The problem is, as we will see how Jesus addresses the serious issue, is that the question that's being asked comes from a faulty worldview. The kind of question comes from a faulty worldview. Jesus will deal with that. But let me illustrate to you a story that I, was, I saw Vody Bacham speak one time. He's a pastor uh, in Texas. He was a theologian in Africa as well. Um, and he told a story that one day when he was approaching a college campus to speak at a college campus, a first-year philosophy student 
came up to Vody and he said, if you believe in a God, he's saying this to Pastor Vody, if you believe in a God who is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, how do you reconcile the issue of theodicy? Theodicy, a fancy way of talking about uh, trying to justify God's goodness in the face of evil today. And Vody responded this way. First thing he says, you took a semester in philosophy, right? Yeah, how'd you know? He said, because if you didn't, you would have just said, if God is so good and powerful, why does bad stuff happen? Vody said, I'm not going to answer that question until you ask it correctly. And the student said, I've been working on that question all day. What do you mean, ask it correctly? And Vody said, you're not asking the question properly. Again, the student said, man, you can't tell me how to ask. It's my question. And Vody said, I will answer your question when you ask it properly. When you look me in the eyes and ask me this, how on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and thought and said yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? Ask it that way and we could talk. But until you ask it that way, he says, you don't understand the issue. Until you ask the question that way, Vody says, you believe the problem is out there somewhere. You believe that there are some individuals who, in and of themselves, deserve something other than the wrath of Almighty God. When you ask me the question this way, why has, not, why has God not consumed and devoured each and every one of us? Why, oh why, oh God? Does your judgment and your wrath tarry? When you ask it that way, you understand the issue. When you ask it the other way, you're asking it in a worldview of the supremacy of man. How dare God not employ his power on behalf of almighty man? Flip the script, and you'll talk about the supremacy of Christ. Then you truly understand the issue, end quote. I was blown away. I was in the audience when he told that story. It's a good illustration that challenges our worldview. Because how, we, you, how you and I perceive who God is and how we perceive how this world functions, the meaning of life itself, it will have a huge impact on the way you and I approach sin and approach suffering. If the man, if man, Mankind is the center of the universe deserving blessings in and of himself that suffering will be very, very hard to process. Unless we see our sin, our utter helplessness and our deserved wrath and God's grace and mercy and kindness undeserved, we'll never find joy in the midst of suffering. The issue of suffering begins with the biblical worldview. And that is exactly what Jesus goes after as he questions his listeners and then answers the questions himself. The surprise answer. We'll spend most of our time here, then we'll go into communion. It's obvious that Jesus knew very well what they were thinking. Look at verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered that way? Verse 4. Do you think that they were worse offenders, the one who the tower fell on, than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now, as we look at this question, this answer of Jesus, let me give you a, a spoiler alert. Jesus will not and does not pull back the curtain of the sovereign purpose and plans of God in allowing these disasters to take place. He doesn't do that. God has a purpose in everything. Even evil is under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. He permits 
Why he permitted sin to enter the world is only known to him, but what he has made known to us is that he allows sin, he allows brokenness to enter the world, but he restrains it, he uses it, he bends it and manages it for his eternal purposes as a declaration of his grace and glory. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, they call him the doctor, the same decree of God which ordains the moral law that prohibits and punishes sin also permits its occurrence, but it limits it and determines the precise channel to which it shall be confined and the precise end to which it shall be directed and overrules its consequences for good, end quote. God's sovereign, the power, the authority, the right to govern, to manage all things toward his holy and good purposes, even our sinful actions, even natural disasters are in the hands of God. Can't get away from that from Scripture. Well, how does that work out? I don't know. And my little finite, puny understanding will never figure that out. What Jesus is addressing here is their worldview. They thought people suffer. I know the stories. They were sinners. They deserved it. That's what they're saying. The worshipers from Galilee, they're on the way to Galilee. Maybe, maybe they stopped at the OTB window on the way. Or read their horoscopes to see what today was going to bring. And God punished them. Or those 18 people walking along the tower. <laughs> Maybe they were having evil thoughts. Maybe that slept with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and God just dropped the tower on them and punished them. Surely they were outwardly pious, but obviously, inwardly, they were corrupt and, and, and wicked. Because atrocities and, and disasters happen, it's the victim's fault. That's, that's the worldview. And, and we have to be quick that we, too, sometimes, that becomes our worldview. Bad things happen to bad people. We jump to that conclusion way too fast. Theology of sin and suffering was common in Israel. One commentator wrote, at that time, it was generally accepted notion that whenever calamities visited people, this was a proof that they were exceptionally sinful, and for that reason, God allowed them to be overtaken by such disasters, end quote. Now, there are occasions in both the Old and New Testament, to be clear, that God judges people at certain times for certain things they've done. Genesis 38, Ur, Judah's firstborn, wicked inside of the Lord, the Lord put him to death. 2 Samuel 6, the anger of the Lord kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him down. Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament you read about Ananias and Sapphira who lied. God brought judgment upon them. Jesus not denying that sin sometimes brings tragedy, because it does, but he emphatically is rejecting the idea that all tragedies is due to the sins of its sufferers. The disciples were no different. Remember in John 9, they met a man who was blind from birth. And they asked Jesus, who sinned? That guy or his parents? He's born blind for a reason. Must be sin. And the assumption was, he's blind, he sinned, somebody did it. Unfortunately, again, sometimes we jump to that conclusion way too quickly. Forgetting the book of Job. Remember his dumb friends wrongly concluded that he was the worst of sinners. Had this great degree of suffering because he sinned. Who's Jesus talking to? He's not talking to those who were murdered. 
He's talking to, you know, not the people whose tower fell on them or, or were slaughtered in Jerusalem. He's not talking to them. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who are assessing the situation, processing the situation, thinking about the disaster and thought, hey, they were worse sinners than me, worse offenders than me. That's the moralistic, religious way approaching suffering and tragedies. I mean, all I got to do is live a good life. I just got to do the right thing. I got to obey God. I got to go to church. I got to pray. I got to give my time. I got to give my money. And God will bless me and prosper me. He'll answer my prayers. Things are going wrong. Well, you know what? My prayers are not being answered. I must be doing something wrong. This must be unconfessed sin in my life. Now I'm just getting punished. So if the tower's falling on you, doing something wrong. You lose your job, you get sick, done something to deserve it. You did it yourself. As I said, sometimes people do suffer the consequences. However, not all suffering is caused by someone's sins. And even if we don't know, we ought to be extremely careful judging the situation. Dr. Keller points out there's another way to approach this text. Worldview, if you have it, if you would. He writes this. When, he writes this. When you see towers fall, I'm going to call this the irreligious approach, the skeptical approach. It's not, I'm going to, I, I, they must have done something wrong. They're, they're worse sinners than me. He says, rather than blame the people on whom the towers fall, this approach blames life, the universe, or God. He says, hey, most people are good. That's their worldview. Most people work hard. Most people deserve a decent life, and so many people don't get a good life. Why? Because the universe is unfair. Life is absurd. Life stinks. God is unfair. God is doing something wrong, end quote. You see what Jesus is doing here? He, he, he's rejecting the whole line of reasoning, both of them. He said, no one should think that the Galilean martyrs were, were worse than anyone else. When the blood was shed. No one should think that, that who, to whom the, the tower fell on are worse sinners than anyone else. God was not singling them out, punishing them. What Jesus is saying here is that when something bad happens, rather than just running and jumping to that conclusion about how guilty someone is, we have something far more imperative to think about. Family, it's our own sin and punishment that it deserves. Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, verse 5, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The statement is made clear that we are all guilty sinners. Our depravity is so undeniable that Jesus just puts it out there and assumes it. So in these very hard words of Jesus, he's saying, on the one hand, don't think that people suffer these atrocities, these natural disasters because they're worse than you. And then on the other hand, that every person on the face of the earth deserves death and destruction because of sins. In other words, if God were to give me and you what we deserve, the tower would fall on us. The question, again, this is just a faulty worldview, not interpreting the present times. The question should come to Jesus, why wasn't I slaughtered with the others? It's horrible. Broken world. That people have died. People are stunned and pain. It's true of terrorist attacks and natural disasters and tsunamis. It's terrible. But as times 
that Jesus is saying is times of those disasters that God uses that reality to remind us that we belong to a lost and broken and fallen world and death rate still remains the same as 100%. These tragedies show us the fragility and the, uh, 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 and the character of the fragile character of life. And without repentance, Jesus says, all die similarly. It's imperative that people repent. So here in these verses, the Lord is giving us one of the purposes, not all of it. He doesn't scroll back to, again, the sovereign purposes, all the purposes of God, but he gives us one purpose in disaster. And it's important. He allows tragedies, natural disasters, to communicate spiritual truth and, and demands all people everywhere to repent or they will perish. That's the text. We could all die in an unexpected moment. I know it's Christmas Eve morning, but it's what Jesus is saying. And some of y'all need to hear that today. The only way to prepare is to be repentant of Christ. Repentant before the Lord, excuse me. And according to Jesus, this is what we should think about. Our imminent departure and our great need for forgiveness. Now, the word that Jesus uses here, look, look at the text if you can, in verse 4. Do you think that they were worse offenders? That word, uh, Chris mentioned last week, is the word for debt. Which is the best word to describe uh, uh, people who owe something to God for their sin. So, so here you see already getting to the heart of the issue that is the gospel. It doesn't answer all the questions about human suffering, but it does. And it does show us at least the finiteness of our heart and soul and our minds and our life. But, and, and the need to be forgiven. It reminds me of, you ever share the gospel with someone and you talk about sin and brokenness and, and the need to turn from your sin and the first thing they want to ask is the question is, hey, what about that person in some remote place in the middle of nowhere that lives all alone and never saw a person ever in their life? What happens to that person? <laughs> the question is the flexion of the, of the personal and the reality of their own sin and their own need for God. The answer would be something like, God will take care of that. He will judge and and and, and Perfectly judge all souls. Right now, what's on your heart? What do you need to do? The real question is, you need to, to repent and turn from your sins. Dr. Keller again. It's the self-centeredness and the pride and the anger and the deception and the denial of our sin. He says, if you really saw your heart, you would know that God does not owe you a comfortable life. On the other hand, God is yearning to be gracious in other words, the gospel is you are much more flawed and much more lost than your heart dares to believe. But on the other hand, you are much more loved, you are much more cared for, you are much more protected than your heart will believe either. End quote. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Do you see what he's pointing out through these, through these stories of disaster? It shows us that spiritual condition that we owe a debt to God that can never be paid. And that's the command to repent and trust and believe. It's only through repentance that we can escape eternal separation from God. To, to be open, to be completely honest, confess, admit our sinfulness toward and against God. That we have rebelled and done what God called us to, not to do and do what he's called us not to do and to, don't do what he's called us to do. We're honest and open about our pride, our lust, our greed, our self-pity, our self-righteousness, and all the sins we've committed, uh, 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 committed, and we need to repent of that. Well, what is repentance? 
He mentions it seriously twice here about the call to repentance. And we've talked about repentance. What, is, what, is, what does repentance mean? Repentance, first, is a broken heart. It's a contrite heart, a remorse. To feel sad, not because we've gotten caught or because we face consequences, but we're grieved over our sins because it's an offense against a holy God who created us and loves us. It's first against him. It's also intellectual. Repentance means to have a change of thought about sin. Thoughts about sin, our minds about sin, what sin is and what sin does. It's intellectual. But ultimately, it's a change of direction. It's not enough to know that sin is sin or even to shed tears. It's about leaving that sinful lifestyle behind and following hard after God. Repentance is intellectual, it's emotional, and it's volitional. All three of those are are essential for our repentance, to be genuine before God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about repentance. A sinner, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness, the hatred of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments, end quote. And let, let me say this before we move on. There's a, difference between, there's, a, there's a difference between turning from doing something you know to be wrong and stop doing it and turning from your sin in a sense of gospel repentance, a turning from sin, brokenness, uh, and, and, and uh, a, a rebellion against a holy God and turning and trusting in Christ. It's just saying, you know what, I need to stop doing this because my health is going bad. What, what does gospel repentance look like? What is it to repent in the truth of the gospel? It's when we turn from our sin and we run to Jesus because we realize that the sins of breaking the commandments like lying, cheating, coveting, using his name in vain, are the symptoms of trying to be our own saviors, our own justifiers, Trusting in something besides Jesus Christ as your only righteousness, your justification, your redemption. And this is why that's so important that we learn to repent in the gospel. Because when things are really going well, the tower's not falling, right? Things are really going well. Serving the Lord, obeying the Lord, doing the thing God wants me to do. It will keep me humble. Because I recognize it is a work of grace. I deserve nothing. And the gospel is, he's my righteous, my justification, and my redemption. When things are going well, I'm still trusting in the gospel. And when things are very difficult or I'm faced with tragedy and disaster, listen, I can be affirmed. I can be held up by the same gospel of grace. And therefore, I know for sure because of the gospel that God is not punishing me for my sin. Because I recognize the gospel is the work of grace. Nothing I deserve. The gospel is he's my righteousness. He's my salvation. He's my justification. He's my redemption. He has done all for me. That's repentance in the gospel. Finally, a patient God. Jesus often, especially in Luke, Luke, there's a lot of parables in Luke. He's trying to teach what he's saying to them or show what he's saying to them through a parable. The Greek word parable means, um, is, is the word parabalo. Para, para means um, beside. Balo means to cast or to throw. To cast or throw something aside. In other words, Jesus takes a concrete illustration thrown alongside a spiritual truth to explain it. 
Jesus takes something they could understand, lays it alongside something they were not getting or didn't see spiritually, and one of the things explained, the natural explains the spiritual. That's what a parable is. And Jesus gives this parable. And some of the folks on that day, and maybe even you here this morning, are facing eternal separation from God. Maybe you haven't trusted Christ, truly repented of your sins, and truly turned from your sins and trusted the Lord. And, and time is running out, and you need to understand that time is running out, and you, you, you need to repent and, and follow the command to repent that Jesus gives. So he compares this crowd to a fruitless fig tree, very popular in Israel. Fig trees normally yielded crops twice a year. I, I, I read this, I learned, I had no idea. Uh, May and June, and then August through October. They grew about 15 to 25 feet, and like a grape vineyard, the fig tree was used as an image of the Old Testament for God's people. For God's people. I also remember this week, the fig tree was the only tree mentioned, or, or not the only tree that was there, but the only tree mentioned in the Garden of Eden. The leaf of the fig tree is what Adam and Eve took together, sewed together to cover their nakedness and their shame. And what I learned about the fig tree this week is that you really can't see the figs from a distance. I got terrible eyesight. I probably couldn't see it very up close. But you had to actually get close to the tree in order to see the fig because it was underneath the foliage. But when the time of year came, when the expectation was there'd be fruit, there'd be figs on that tree to eat of its fruit, the owner of the vineyard in our parable looked and there was no fruit. So he came back. Year after year after year, until the third year, there was still no fruit. So he tells the vine dresser, the gardener, to go ahead and cut it down. If the fig tree is not producing good fruit, or fruit at all, it shouldn't be allowed to rob the nutrients that the other trees need, the other vines need. Fail to bear fruit, wasting soil, wasting, you know, uh, valuable soil. That's why he says, why should it take up the ground? Let's cut it down. But notice the vine dresser pleaded with the owner in verse 8. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure. Then, verse 9, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, cut it down. One thing you learn about parables is there's not a whole lot of meaning. There's not a whole lot of um, interpretation, like four or five, six different meanings to a parable. You can get in trouble that way. Centuries ago, people would read parables and read it allegorically, uh, and the wheels came off, you know, the, uh, the car. You know what I mean? It was just terribly done. You can make it sound like anything. Oh, three years has to do with this, and the figs, you know, look at that, and it just, it really becomes a problem. So when you're reading parables in the New Testament, usually it's one of two things. It's very simple. And Jesus is trying to illustrate a spiritual truth. And simple. It's a clear and graphic way to portray God's displeasure and judgment coming alongside his long-suffering and his patience. That's what the parable's teaching. It's that simple. Everyone agreed there was no fruit on the tree. No one would argue that it deserved to be cut down. But the point is, let's give it a time. Let's give it an opportunity. Let's, let's, let's wait and see if it will bear fruit. Let's loosen the soil. Put some fertilizer down. Let's see what happens next year. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, the apostle writes these words. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The point of the parable, the window of opportunity is open. It's not going to stay open forever. 
we don't repent, we perish. The reason we still have time, the reason you're here this morning is that God's patience towards you. God is patient toward you, and he's telling you and everyone to repent and believe on him. That's why you're here. He's being patient with us. We have not perished. Not that we're better than anyone else, but God is showing his patience and his love and his mercy and his kindness toward you this morning. Our Advent reading was all about the love of God and his love and his kindness and his mercy he's shown to us in the Christmas story. But the time is short. Judgment will come. Jesus talked about a time that you, you what did he say? An hour you, we don't expect it. I want you to, this morning, this Christmas Eve morning, to get the whole picture. It's not simply or only the, the judgment that everyone deserves, but the kindness, love, and patience of God calling us to repent and to have faith in him. Let me end it this way. Who is teaching us this parable? We know the ones that he's teaching it to is not the ones who have perished, but the ones who are assessing the, the stories. But who is teaching this parable? Jesus is. The Messiah, the Christ. The personification, the embodiment of God's love and grace, mercy and truth. Jesus, listen family, is the absolute proof that they had it all wrong, that their worldview and our worldview is wrong. We simply can't say those people who had the tower fall on them, those people who were murdered in the temple as they worshiped God deserved it. They did something wrong, not me. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the perfect and purest and best man who ever lived, and he had the tower fall on him. He was ambushed and his blood was spilled. Jesus is saying, I want you to know that if you repent, if you trust me, the towers won't fall on you because the ultimate tower has fallen on me. The ultimate eternal justice, that tower fell on me. I got what you deserve for all that you have done wrong and your sin and your brokenness. The only way to handle injustice in this life is to see that Jesus got the greatest injustice of all time. The one person who deserved God to act on his behalf, to rescue him from atrocities and disasters, to listen to him, to call, to cry out on the cross, turned his back. Why have you forsaken me? As the sin and brokenness and, and rebellion poured out on Jesus. What that means is when the towers are falling on you or me, we can say with the Apostle Paul, don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. The tower that falls on us, that little tower, doesn't compare to the giant eternal wrath tower that fell on Jesus. God's not punishing me for my sin. I can get through this. The only tower that could really destroy you and me is the eternal justice of God, and it fell on Christ. He was taken into custody, the crown of thorns placed on his head. He was beaten, whipped with rods, nailed to a cross. His blood was shed. It's part of God's sovereign, good, holy, intimate, uh, excuse me, ultimate plan and purpose to redeem us, to save us from the wrath and our sins. You see, family, the, the sweetness of repentance, the fig trees, the fig fruit, can grow in your life when you drink deeply of the gospel. 
So when the towers are falling on me and my life, I could say, it's not punishment. Jesus took my punishment. When things are going really well and the towers are not falling on me, I could say, you know what? It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. It's all of his love and grace toward me. And the reason, family, listen, and the reason God can be good to me and not give me what I deserve is that Jesus Christ got what he didn't deserve. That's the gospel. He got the ultimate tower. It fell on him. His life was poured out and his blood was shed. Let, that, let, let your life be filled with the sweetness of real repentance, gospel repentance. When the towers are falling and when the towers are not falling, rest in Christ. Turn, repent, and believe on him. This text and this table is an invitation from Jesus to repent. We're going to take communion. And on the basis of that cross, the death of Christ, our substitutionary sacrifice, God will grant you full pardon. But family, the text is telling us if we don't repent, if we, if we hold on to our sins, not confessing what we have done, not being sorry for it, not changing our ways. We will never be forgiven. And Jesus is calling us to repent. It's a call of love. It's a call of mercy. It's a call of God's grace. God sent his son into the world to preach repentance because he himself was going to bear the judgment, a much worse judgment than the people who died when a tower fell or the people who were murdered by the pool of Siloam. Much worse than that when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. The band's gonna come up and this is what we're gonna do. If you've been here, and, but you've never given your life to Christ, you never yielded to Christ, the command is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. It just means stop being your own Lord and Savior. It means stop going in the direction you're going and turn and submit yourself, yield yourself to Christ who gave his life for you, forgives you of his sin, and is calling you to follow him. May the Holy Spirit work in your heart to show you your need to repent, to turn, and to trust Christ. It's the entrance into the kingdom, but... Brothers and sisters in Christ already, repentance is a daily activity. When we stop sinning, we'll stop repenting. And nobody in this room has stopped sinning, including me. The bread represents his body. The cup represents the blood that was shed. It's for believers. Whether it's the first time you're committing yourself to Christ, you're welcome to the table. If you're a follower of Christ, we're going to spend time repenting, you're welcome to the table. If you have not come to that Conclusion, you are not ready to, re- to repent and believe on Jesus. We're glad you're here. We love you. Come back at 7 o'clock. But the table is for the family of God. Where are you at right now? Where are you at right now? I, I think today, if I could say this with love, some of us are just playing the church thing. We're glad you're here. But haven't truly, truly repented of your sins. And yielded your life completely and solely to one who gave his life for you. Today's that day. Give your life to Christ. Father, thank you for these hard words spoken from the lips of our Savior. God, it is our prayer that they soften our hearts to see the beauty and the glory of Christ, to see a great length he went through in order to redeem, save, rescue, and forgive us of our sins. 
Father, this Christmas morning, Christmas Eve morning, as we celebrate you and the cross, Lord Jesus, we pray, Father, that we as your people will respond in a way that brings honor and glory to you. God, please help us to see our sin, but to see a greater Savior. For our sin is many, but your mercy is more. Help us, Lord, to confess and repent well, and help us to celebrate with great joy all that you have accomplished at Calvary's cross. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.